The Dry Cleaner Cast presents Need to Know. Need to Know is a podcast featuring conversations with security experts focused on the terrorism and intelligence stories dominating the headlines. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. This is Need to Know. On this episode of Need to Know, we're joined by former State Department counterterrorism agent and author Fred Burton. On today's episode, we discuss the Salisbury poisoning, and we also look at the sonic attacks against U.S. embassies in Cuba and China. Fred Burton was the Deputy Chief of the Counterterrorism Division for the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service. He is currently the Vice President of Stratfor, a strategic intelligence and analysis firm tracking global security and international affairs. Fred is the author of a number of excellent books such as Chasing Shadows and Ghost Confessions of a Counterterrorism Officer. He also has a new book coming out on the 25th of October called Beirut Rules, The Murder of a CIA Station Chief and Hezbollah's War Against America. I'll be interviewing Fred on a later podcast about that book, and it's a very interesting topic, and I can't wait to have a chat with Fred about that. I'll be posting an Amazon link to the book in both the show notes and on our website. As you're listening to this show, if you click on the image, you should get access to all the notes of the company, the episode, and in there, there'll be a link to the book. Just before we begin, a quick service announcement. The podcast is back from its little summer break. And we'll be posting a new show the last Friday of every month. From time to time, there will be more than one show a month, as I have been recording quite a lot of interviews. And in such an unpredictable world, current events inspire new shows that I hadn't even considered. If you like what I'm doing, please support the show by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You can go to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. You can become a subscriber for as little as $2 a month. For more information about the show, information about our guests, and information about my new film, The Dry Cleaner, please go to our website, www.drycleanercast.co.uk. On there you'll find links to books that the authors are discussing, you'll find show notes, and also you'll find out information about my upcoming film, The Dry Cleaner, which will be out next year. I look forward to sharing more information about that as we go on over the next few months. Just before we begin, I'd just like to dedicate this show to an old friend of mine from film school who recently passed away. His name is Oliver Marshall, and I would like to just dedicate this show to him today. So Ollie, this one is for you. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Fred, welcome back to the podcast and thank you for joining me today. 
Thank you for having me back on, Chris. Great to have you back on. Last time we spoke, it was a few weeks after the Salisbury poisoning, and we discussed the possibility that the Russian intelligence services might somehow be involved. And it appears that we were spot on. As earlier this month, the Metropolitan Police Service here in London have named two Russian nationals um, as being the kind of key suspects in the Scribble poisoning case. And both men are believed to be officers of the GRU, which is Russia's military intelligence services. So Fred, what were your thoughts when this was announced? Well, I wasn't surprised. Uh, in essence, uh, the the Russian GRU and and the F- FSB, this is just a, a, a tool of their foreign policy, and they certainly like to hunt down and get even with uh, former spies. I, I think it's part of their psychology and makeup. And, and obviously, uh, the uh, British authorities uh, would not uh, go so public with uh, the statements from the prime minister, for example, uh, accusing the Russian government of being behind this without uh, very strong uh, evidence and intelligence to support that statement. Yeah, and and they've in the press release they did, and we've got like CCTV images. Uh, obviously, we've had frame the ones I've seen publicly have frame grabs of that CCTV um, and a sort of timeline of what they're up to, and it's certainly. Um, they, from what I understand, they visited the day before and then they returned at a very particular time. Um, and what more, uh, the stranger thing that came up was uh, about a week later when both men appeared in this very strange interview on, on Russian television when they claimed to be tourists looking for Salisbury Cathedral and put off by the uh, the very small amount of snow that we encountered that week. I watched that, Chris. Uh, that was a fascinating interview uh, by uh, RT and uh, clearly scripted, in my mind, uh, uh, in an effort by the the Russians, the GRU, probably in response to uh, the, the British statements and so forth. But uh, let's face it, um, I, I know how the intelligence community works. Uh, clearly, we have uh, evidence and a smoking gun uh, to some degree, uh, probably highly classified intelligence to also support uh, the forensic work done. But uh, – uh, the Metropolitan Police and, and Special Branch, I thought, did a tremendous job of just uh, walking the cat back and and pacing the uh, the travels of the two Russian assassins through the streets of London and Salisbury. And it's also fascinating to me that uh, both left uh, on a flight back to Moscow on the date that uh, the Skripals were hit. So... Um, you know, clearly, uh, some things are what they are in this business. Yeah, and and they had the the, the thing I wasn't clear about was the because they've got this modified um, sort of perfume bottle. Now, what I I was never I'm not clear about is whether they brought that with them or whether they collected that when they were here. Do you know what the situation with that bottle was? No, we have not seen any evidence one way or the other. Uh, logistically, uh, clearly, they could have been left in a dead drop uh, somewhere in London or Salisbury. Uh, it clearly could have been brought in uh, through the uh, diplomatic pouch because mm. those are not checked. And then, in essence, a, um, a Russian employee from uh, the the embassy in London could have could have gotten it in the hands of these two killers. But uh, uh, that, to me, is an interesting twist. Uh, whether or not uh, 
MI5 uh, or 6 knows exactly how that bottle got into the UK has not been made public that I've seen. Because mm, it's not, it, even though it, it was disguised, I can only assume, because I don't know, but um, that um, if it was containing uh, Novichok, it would set off some sort of, um, uh, well, when it was being scanned through at the airport. Well, actually, saying that, they would have been take, they would have scanned it through at Russia, not in the UK, wouldn't they? Because you don't really get any scanning when you come in, do you? That's correct. I mean, they very well could have uh, simply, uh, I mean, uh, in reality, I, I know how these things work. If they're uh, GRU agents, they could have uh, been expedited onto the flight uh, with zero passport uh, controls or screening whatsoever in bogus names and and simply stepped off the plane um, from Moscow with it in their pocket uh, or in their carry-on bag. Um, I think that uh, that's a highly probable scenario. Uh, mm. Having said that, it would not surprise me in the least if uh, the Russians brought it in via the diplomatic pouch. Yeah, because that is a. You know, I, I don't know if you want to explain a bit about diplomatic pouches because they're they're quite a, um, a special thing, really, aren't they? <laughs> they really are. Uh, it gets uh, you know per the Vienna Convention, uh, couriers that are carrying a pouch, and and a pouch can be literally as big as a house. Uh, uh, can be furniture and so forth. Uh, uh, it's not necessarily the old uh, TV show of a briefcase uh, handcuffed to your wrist. Uh, most of them can be small enough that you can place them inside a carry-on. Uh, the U.S. bags are uh, bright orange. I uh, I don't recall off the top of my head uh, what color the, the Russian diplomatic pouches bags are, but uh, in essence, you cannot search them. You cannot uh, hold up the courier. You cannot detain them. You cannot X-ray. You cannot look inside the pouch. So uh, it goes back, uh, you know, probably a good a hundred years with uh, the ability of nation states to send uh, diplomatic traffic back and forth without uh, uh, it being read and and so forth. And and so uh, it's it's a workaround. I'm sad mm. to say by. Uh, many nations uh, to uh, secrete uh, poisons, toxins, uh, weapons, explosives, uh, as well as uh, bogus passports uh, into a nation and hard currency as well. Yeah, I, 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 I think I'm right in remembering that um, the Libyan government under Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein's Iraq would use the diplomatic pouches to smuggle machine guns into the UK and other countries as well. All the time. Uh, one of the things that I would do when I was a counterterrorism agent is uh, you try to map the uh, travel uh, and tracking of diplomatic couriers uh, preceding an attack uh, to try to see uh, if you had any unusual travel patterns or behaviors. So if you had a state sponsor of terror such as Iraq or Libya uh, or Iran uh, you try to map up the couriers' uh, movements with uh, all the known uh, intelligence officers moving in and out of a country. Mm -hmm. And are they? How is it? Is it really considered like a hundred percent secure? Then these diplomatic pouches, or do when it comes to like um, I don't know, sort of diplomatic papers, they still send them electronically or another way as well? Well, uh, actually, Chris, there's been a uh, turn back the clock or an old school view onto that uh, in our days of uh, nation states' uh, ability to read everybody's mail mm. uh, in some capacity, uh, the old tried and true method of 
of uh, hard copy documents, uh, especially if you're trying to secrete into a nation something like a, a, a toxin or a poison or a weapon, uh, you're going to want to have that point-to-point kind of contact and guarantee that it gets from uh, Moscow to London uh, uh, and so forth. So uh, this kind of action takes place every day. Uh, and uh, probably it might be somewhat of a surprise to your listeners, but uh, uh, most diplomatic couriers are are 95% of the time flying on commercial uh, air travel, uh, even trains uh, from time to time, but mostly commercial air travel. Uh, so you're, you could be seated uh, next to one on one of your trips one day. <laughs> Well, there we go. Let's just hope they're not carrying anything toxic. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I've carried pouches uh, on many of my investigations with them just stuck into my uh, uh, Gurkha bag uh, or uh, carry-on luggage. Uh, uh, but uh, it's uh, these folks, you know, every nation has them. Uh, most of the couriers work for uh, the foreign office or their security services, so... Uh, it's very easy to muster uh, couriers into play to help you uh, get uh, tools of the espionage trade from point A to point B. Yeah, yeah, I bet, I bet. Quickly, just going back to this, um, the interview. Why is is a strange one? Because I think I, I, I my thoughts on the interview was it was obviously designed to. Um, I don't know, is it to sow seeds of doubt in, in people in the West and make them think, well, hang on a minute, maybe the, maybe these guys didn't do it? Because I've certainly seen some, um, what I call sort of apologists for the Kremlin. I can't think of a better term, so apologies <laughs> to the apologists. But, um, That's a good some of them have been speculating, you know, it's amazing the kind of loops that they're doing to try and justify this press conference. And I do wonder whether... This might they might have just gone a bit too far with it. I don't know. It's a strange one that press conference. I think so as well. I think it was very strange. I was watching the body language. I mean, uh, these two uh, uh, chaps are right out of central casting. If you want to look at uh, uh, you know lean and fit um, uh, officers of the GRU, uh, I know it's fascinating that the British authorities uh, said that. Uh, they clearly are traveling under aliases. I mean, one of their names was uh, Basharov and the other was Petrov. And, and uh, you know, that's another aspect of this. Uh, when, when a nation state, whether it be the Russian government or the British government for that matter, uh, wants to create a new identity, they simply could uh, crank out a passport in whatever identity you want to be. So uh, it's hard to say who these two individuals were, but uh, their body language was most nervous uh, during the course of the interview, uh, clearly somewhat scripted. Uh, uh, they kind of look like uh, uh, two ducks out of water, you know, under under the light, uh, just, you know, going through the motions with uh, pre-canned statements. Yeah, because I could only assume that they were not um... – when they took on this job, because I'm assuming they just assigned it and they get on with it, I can only assume they didn't believe that eventually they would end up doing that interview. <laughs> no, I can't imagine that either. But, uh, you know, I think from a uh, just a disinformation perspective, what the the Russian GRU uh, was trying to do was simply, uh, I mean, let's face it, there will be people in this world that uh, are going to believe the Russians in this case. And, uh, and that's just the way it is. But, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, this is, uh, you know, the great game being played out. And 
and the Russians uh, wanted to counter the the very forceful statements by the British government, you know, not only by the prime minister, but at the UN and so forth. Yeah. And, and obviously, prior to the naming of these individuals publicly, um, we had the expulsion of the ambassadors, um, sorry, not of ambassadors, but of um, uh, embassy staff, Russian embassy staff, sort of in many, many countries. And so there, there was definitely, they must be very confident in the information that they have. No doubt. I think it was uh, 142 uh, Russian diplomats were uh, declared persona non grata around the world in various countries. And yes, and and you know those those state th- th- those kinds of acts uh, are taken um, when you do have uh, uh, the smoking gun. You have. Uh, one hundred percent evidence, and you know that's fully shared amongst uh, you know especially the Five Eyes nations, but uh, through all of your liaison intelligence services, and and lay it out for them, and say, you know, you be the judge. Here it is, and and so forth. So, uh, a very brazen attack again. You know, I I am, uh, you know, you sit back and think of this from a strategic perspective, and. Uh, uh, I think the British government did a wonderful job in, in, in putting together the investigation and the and mapping these two uh, operatives on on British soil. But uh, just the the nature of the acts is is very alarming that they feel that they can just simply get away with this. Well, this is something very interesting because both men left quite a trail. Now, there's a TV show over here called Hunted where uh, members of the public go on the run for 30 days and are tracked down by professional trackers, former spies, police officers. And I can tell you these guys would definitely have not won, would not have won Hunted. They would have been found quite quickly. Um, and they, they left a heck of a trail. They were, even took public transport that has CCTV on it. And I was one, I, mean, I wanted to find out about what you thought about their modus operandi because obviously they, they were killers and um, they were up to no good. And it's just fascinating that they did it in a way that um, that was so obvious if, when you, once they're found, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yes, they certainly left a uh, very good digital footprint uh, or what we would call a rabbit trail. But Chris, uh, if you if you look at this in context in our post 9-11 world and, and London 7-7 and London uh, ongoing, you know, attacks on, on London Bridge and so forth um, – the the intelligence services of of most Western nations are geared to find people just like this today, yeah. uh, based upon their patterns and and behavior. Meaning, uh, it takes that act in order to wind back the clock and figure out who these individuals were, mm. which shows you the power of CCTV. But it does very little to help you prevent that attack from occurring. So. That's the issue here, meaning I'm, I'm not surprised in the least that uh, MI5 and uh, the Metropolitan Police put together, you know, their very detailed uh, movements of these two uh, yes. because uh, that's what the system's geared to do today. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny because, as you know, I'm a um, a writer and uh, as a filmmaker and writer, and it's just I think when we last spoke, I think I, I speculated that these people would probably have – Waited to at least three in the morning to put the uh, the stuff on the the door to give them a sort of window of opportunity to get away, but they were not like that at all. Um, and and it was um, yeah, I just I sort of figured that my fictional equivalent of what they probably did seemed more professional than what they actually did. But there we go. Well, uh, sometimes uh, you know, in these kinds of operations, you do want to keep them simple uh, mm. because you want to make sure you're you're putting the Novichok in the right house. Mm. Uh, so, um, 
you know, the, the curious part for me would be whether or not there was a recce team, a reconnaissance team that was well, sent in ahead of time. This. Yeah, because do, yeah. do you think there was? Because th- there's been no mention so far that I know of of a, of a support team, and they only looked at the house one day before. And the timing of putting the Novichok on the door was only pretty much, I think, about an hour or less before Sergei and Yulia left the house. To, I could only assume go to lunch somewhere. Um, and so to me, I find that timing hard to believe it was left to chance. I, I agree with you 100%. The uh, the Namachak was applied, you know, between 1200 and 1330 local. Mm. Uh, so there's an hour and a half window. Uh, they, in all pr- probability, conducted their own foot surveillance that day before, simply to get eyes on the target. But uh, th- I would I would be uh, shocked if there wasn't a reconnaissance team that was sent in uh, ahead of time. Uh, with uh, all your useful open source tools like your Google Earths of the world, and then mm. if you can muster, you know, the services of the GRU, you could also use your own satellites and so forth to help. Uh, the the curious part to me would be uh, if uh, the GRU would have had uh, a counter surveillance team set up on uh, these two operatives as as they actually had the uh, operation in play. Uh, if in fact they had a team with them uh, that's not been disclosed uh, or outed by the British government, but that would not surprise me a bit either. But um, I think there was a high degree of pre-operational surveillance here, uh, meaning uh, they knew exactly what to hit. But it's like anything else when you're even at the firing range, you know, you're going to want to look at the target ahead of time and kind of take a peek yourself. Uh, and so uh, that's probably exactly what happened with these folks that came into town, uh, yeah. knowing exactly what they were going to hit. Yeah, well, I know, like when I have an important interview, I sometimes am geeky enough to do the route the day before just to make sure I know how to get there for that precise time. You know, so these guys obviously were doing something like that. So it was, uh, yeah. Now with this, so if they did have some sort of local support. Um, what kind of people do you think it would be? Would this be, do you think, um, so a team flown in, or do you think it could be local embassy staff, or could it be, do you think there could be some sort of like, I don't know, local, um, some sort of local support group of sympathizers or something to the Russian cause? All of the above, uh, meaning uh, it would you could tick through those uh, examples and you could utilize uh, local hires uh, on the street from the Russian embassy. You could have uh, local assets that you've recruited in some capacity to to help you with these kinds of specific missions. Uh, I think an operation like this where you're going to be so brazen going after a defector, uh, you're going to have the A-team with you. So uh, you probably would have support uh, from the Russian embassy in London uh, or um, you know a third country to help to some degree with logistics and and so forth and communications. So uh, that's interesting, and that's another thing that no one's disclosed here either uh, regarding whether or not uh, you know their communications were being monitored in some capacity. But uh, you would have to think that uh, the Met, uh, the Metropolitan Police, or or MI5 uh, has been all over that as well, trying to triangulate, uh, you know, from cell phone towers and so forth, too. 
Because mm. whoever did the pre-surveillance would have to pass that information over to the two guys, and it'd be interesting to know how and when they passed that information on. Because it makes me think of, so I always think of movies, but of that opening scene in Collateral where Tom Cruise arrives at the airport and bumps into Jason Statham, who hands him a briefcase of all the information he needs. Right. You know. So where's the Jason Statham in this story? Well, and uh, <laughs> you know the the Russians are a bit old school when it comes to that. So mm. uh, you know they might have received a briefcase when they stopped off, you know, when they jumped off the plane inbound from Moscow, uh, you know, they could have had a brush pass. Uh, something could have been exchanged either with location data or the actual perfume bottle, you know, holding the, the nerve agent. So uh, those are the kinds of things that, you know, if that in fact occurred, uh, there's no doubt that in my mind that the Metropolitan Police has looked at that, you know, mm. looking for, uh, brush passes is, or uh, dead drops in some capacity. And if they have it, they haven't disclosed it yet. But if it's a dead drop, they're going to want to set up and watch it for a while too, uh, just mm. to see if it's ever used again. Yeah, and they picked they picked a very interesting place to stay, and also I suppose an interesting route to get to Salisbury because they had to do quite a few cha um, changes of trains to get there. Because I actually know this route because Waterloo Station is a station I used to use quite regularly, and they would have had to take in the Docklands Light Railway to get to uh, Canary Wharf and change at Canary Wharf to go to Waterloo Station. At least that's one route you could do, um, and I think that's probably the route they would have taken because it would have been the quickest. But there's quite a few opportunities on that route to kind of bump into people and, and do those brush passes as well as uh to give you the opportunity to check for surveillance on you yes. meaning uh to look for uh the the british surveillance teams to make sure you're 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 clean before you you know get on the next train or if you're going to go forth with the mission so uh those kinds of uh train transfers are, you know, again, are very old school, uh, but mm. they work, let's face it. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. So when we last spoke about this, you you asked about who else could have been targeted for assassination, because obviously the Scripples were probably one of a few people on the list. Has there been any more information about who else could have been targeted? Not that we've seen. Uh, let's, let's face it, it's very reasonable to assume that, uh, you know, the Russians have – uh, a hit list of uh, defectors that uh, they have uh, somewhere at uh, GRU, Moscow Center, for example, and uh, they're looking at uh, opportunities to get even. And, and like we chatted about in the past, uh, you know, the one thing not to lose sight of in this kind of operation is that this clearly resonates all around the world because uh, if you're the Norwegian service or the the U.S. services uh, or the U.S. marshals or the CIA, you're thinking about all the other defectors that you have perhaps that you're keeping watch on and you're making sure that they were not looked at in some capacity. So uh, there is a, a, a huge uh, disruption aspect that takes place that literally resonates around the globe when one of these events occurs. Mm, and they're, they're quite... They seem quite rare, but they're getting alarmingly more common now, aren't they? <laughs> they, they seem to be, and uh, it appears that uh, the UK and London, you know, is almost ground ground zero for this uh, kind mm. of behavior on the the Russians' part. I I, I think there's a uh, proximity, a geography issue. I think there's a historical kind of nexus there. If you go back, you know, since since uh, World War II, just with uh, 
the relationship and the you know the amount of espionage on on you know UK soil in the past. I mm. I think the Russians are very comfortable in that operational environment uh, and and so forth. So um, you know I I would like to think that this uh, would be the last, but uh, I'm not uh, overly optimistic. No, well it's te- it's sort of it's just over ten years since the. Um... Uh, the Litvinenko killing, which was equally as brazen. And um, I've always, when I've speaking to people online who doubt what's happened, I always bring that up because it was, it's so similar in many ways. It's, um, you know, because that was, again, that particular killing was actually took place on CCTV itself because there was footage of him drinking the tea at the hotel. So, you know, they really didn't seem to care about that either. So, yeah. I think that's purposeful too, mm. uh, especially uh, you know for those defectors. But I also think it's a signal for those on the fence, Chris. Like mm. we've chatted in the past, meaning uh, if you are a double agent uh, now working for the FSB or the GRU or the Russian Foreign Ministry, uh, you might think twice about uh, uh, either working for the British government or the Americans uh, after what you've seen unfold, because. First and foremost, uh, how do you know that you can be protected? Mm. Well, this is it. And and certainly um, it makes Britain look back. So if you're a Russian thinking of working for MI6, it's that you will think twice about it, definitely. Yeah, and that's human nature. Uh, mm. And and if you're on the fence, uh, you know, about that, uh, these kinds of events, uh, you know, put the fear of God in you. Mm. And it's it's undoubtedly going to have an effect on our, uh, you know, on Britain and America's ability to gather intelligence because people are going to be put off, which obviously is the intention. So it's yeah, an interesting one. It is a yeah, it's much bigger than it um, than it appears really. Um, before we move on to um, sonic attacks against U.S. embassies, is there anything else about the Scripple poisoning you'd like to discuss? Well, I think uh, if you look at, you know, with the the death of uh, Don Sturgis uh, as a result of this, you know, that, um, you know, her uh, significant other stumbled upon the the Novichok and the perfume bottle, uh, you know, that that again, um, you know, is uh, another killing on on UK soil. And uh, you would like to think that – and I have no doubt that uh, MI5 and 6 and, and the Met, uh, you know, take these kinds of incidences at, you know, with a high degree of of seriousness and that uh, they're probably, you know, thinking of, well, how do we get our hands on these Russians and, mm-hmm. and, and so forth. So uh, I don't expect them to forget that. No, no. I mean, these two individuals are effectively – blown as intelligence operatives now but they well they'll have to just stay in russian friendly countries now won't they with no extradition treaty they will be placed on what is called a burn list and mm. uh uh you know their full bio data and identifiers and photos will be shared you know throughout the free world and uh they'll they'll be on lookout for the rest of their natural lives so uh yeah. and maybe yes. they're fine with that uh but uh i know i wouldn't be Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast.
There have been a series of sonic attacks against um, U.S. embassies and embassy staff in Cuba and China, and I, and I believe you've been sort of following this because I know you come from a diplomatic protection background. Can you talk us through what is known about these attacks? The fascinating aspect with that, Chris, is that, uh, of course, you look at the locations where these uh, sonic attacks are occurring. I, again, uh, almost the old... Uh, Cold War uh, Soviet sphere to some degree with uh, Moscow and Havana, and then uh, you look at Beijing as well. Uh, I think uh, there's still uh, not a lot of clarity as to who actually is behind this, meaning uh, are we dealing with the Russians or the Chinese or – you know, are the Cubans allowing just the Russians and the Chinese to to operate out of Havana? Uh, is it a collaborative kind of effort? You know, what exactly is it? I, I think there's been a tremendous amount of um, scientific and academic studies looking at this as to what it could be. Uh, and uh, to be quite frank, uh, I, I don't think we know exactly what it is uh, here. Uh, but I do know in the course of my dialogue with uh, – uh, a lot of my uh, former colleagues and current colleagues, uh, it's certainly very troubling. And it gets back into that psychological aspect of being in the business, meaning put yourself in, in the shoes of uh, working for the foreign office uh, or as a diplomat uh, or an intelligence officer for the United States or the UK or any of the Five Eyes nations you're really thinking twice about taking your family and, and getting these assignments in places like Moscow or Havana or Beijing. Yeah, well, this is it. They'd be targeting the you know people in their homes, not just at the embassies. Um, and the symptoms are terrible, like brain injuries, hearing loss, cognitive problems. And, you know, it, it sounds appalling. It certainly does. And, uh, you know, most normal people would not want to put their family uh, through that kind of, you know, the job is tough enough, then – you compound it with some of these kinds of problems, and and you really start to thinking, you know, start thinking twice. Now, I know from a physical security perspective, when you think about it too, uh, you know, most of the services, uh, the security services, have very robust, you know, systems and plans and procedures and processes in place to protect an embassy structure. Hmm. But when you have homes out on the economy, where some of these things could be occurring, for example where you might have your families, that's the troubling part. And then these homes, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but you know, for your listeners' sake, most of these homes kind of rotate through uh, the foreign service. So it's not unusual to have, you know, to be staying in a home that perhaps uh, somebody from the foreign service or agency for international development or uh, one of the, you know, military attache offices had before, and it's basically been in the in the government's hands uh, for you know the past twenty five years. So uh, that's part of the challenge too. Is um, they're very well known, and um, so uh, it's certainly alarming, and it's it's very very scary. But you may recall uh, just from the course of your research and and um, uh, look into espionage in general. Uh, you know, we went through the uh, Americans went through the spy dust problems in Moscow. Yeah. So, you know, this is appears to be some degree of high tech, you know, kind of variant of that uh, to where uh, individuals are being targeted. 
Yeah, that, actually, that spy dust, that was radioactive material, wasn't it, if I remember correctly? It was, and uh, I know that there was, you know, that created a lot of angst within the uh, Foreign Service, uh, you know, the Foreign Office, that uh, it, it's like anything else. Everybody sits back and, and says, well, you know, I was in Moscow on this, uh, you know, meeting, or, you know, I was there for two or three years. I, am I affected too? So, you know, there's mm. that that psychological aspect, you know, that affects uh, what assignments you're going to bid on, where where you want to go serve, and and let's face it, it might be a heck of a lot easier, you know, to take a to take an assignment to um, you know um, uh, Copenhagen, uh, or, you know, versus Moscow in in light of all of these problems. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, there's a there's an interesting thing about the um, why the Cuban embassy or even the embassy in China. Why were they targeted? What's significant about those locations? I think the ease of uh, uh, operational uh, liaison amongst those services, meaning, uh, you know, there there are no friendly intelligence services. Everybody knows that, mm. but there are intelligence services that help each other with a common enemy. Yeah, and so if you look at, uh, you know, who is the uh, enemy of uh, the United States when it comes to, you know hostile intelligence service targeting. Uh, you have Russia, Cuba, and China. Uh, so, um, you know, if if there's a common enemy, um, you know, that there you have it, and there's your common motive. So, uh, you know, the verdict's still out as to who's directly responsible for this. Uh, though, you know, a betting man would, would certainly look at Russia uh, and, and China perhaps to a little, little lesser degree. Yeah, and it's, it's, it feels like, I mean, I don't know much about this technology, but it almost feels like somebody sort of testing this stuff out to then maybe use it down the line. And certainly um, the first, because the first attack was in Cuba in 2016, wasn't it? It was, and, and you very well could be right. Uh, you know, it's uh, they're beta testing the, uh, uh, the equipment and the device, you know, predicated upon a fixed target, uh, whether it be a diplomat's residence. So they're using a safe house or a perch uh, to, to emanate or to push this uh, sonic kind of uh, emanation in that direction. So um, uh, it's kind of scary when you really think about it. I kind of read this, but sort of Cuba or Havana seemed almost a bit like the Casablanca for people against America because there's quite a few intelligence services operating in Cuba that are using it as a sort of staging area to to target the US. So there's a lot of opportunities for cut out states. Um, I can't think of one now, but um, you know who could who could have done it on behalf of someone else? Without they? a doubt, I mean the Cubans uh, are going to uh, give a wink and a nod, uh, especially towards the Russians for their activity uh, there. Uh, Chinese, again, to a little lesser degree, but, uh, you know, all things can be negotiated. So uh, it is a modern-day Casablanca and uh, certainly a very uh, hostile operation when it comes to the targeting of Americans, meaning, uh, you know, the, the Cubans have been very effective them, themselves from an intelligence service in in recruiting and flipping uh, American intelligence officers and they they just don't have the the notoriety that the russians do um so um they they're uh, they're a very efficient and effective service uh, you know they don't have the money that the uh 
the British or the U.S. or, or the Russians have, but but they certainly have the uh, the expertise and the skill set. Yeah, I remember when I was chatting to Vince Houghton at the Spy Museum a few years back. He was putting Cuba in, I think, even the top five services, um, just because they really are just focused on the U.S. and it means that they can put all their resources into that one target. Without a doubt, and uh, they can get laser focused and fixated on that and. Uh, you know, use their resources. And, you know, they have the reach back into the United States with the Cuban, you know, immigrant population and so forth. So uh, it, it, they've always been um, uh, viewed, I'm, I'm sad to say, as a little lesser threat in the foreign counterintelligence arena. But um, uh, I certainly would put them on the same par uh, as to capability as uh, the, the GRU or the FSB. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I know that we were, we were sort of speculating who it could be because the New York Times ran a piece just the, um, I think it was the beginning of the month, claiming it was Russia were responsible for this. But do you, I mean, do you think it is likely to be Russia or, or do we think it is somebody else? I think it's uh, highly probable. Uh, I think from a, you know, from an analytical uh, standpoint, uh, there's probably a, a 75, 80% probability that it's Russia. If you look at uh, what we just were talking about with the Novichok poisonings and mm. Mm. the uh, very aggressive uh, actions on the part of the GRU, uh, this is a little bit more subtle, but it also is very effective and and certainly creating enough chaos in in the Foreign Service, at least with the Americans, to to give folks pause uh, as to whether or not they're interested in becoming a Russian expert. Uh, there's a lot of other safer kind of assignments uh, than, than having to deal with the Russians, let's face it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I'd be picking a Jamaica desk or something. If I had a job. <laughs> anyway, well, actually, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> no, Bermuda. Yeah, Bermuda. Bermuda. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still waiting for my appointment to be the United States ambassador there, and I'll – uh, if I get that, I'll certainly bring you along, Chris. Oh, thank you. Thank you. appreciate that. That's brilliant. Well, look, Fred, um, before we wrap up, um, were there any other thoughts you had on on the, um, on the this topic that you'd like to discuss in case we haven't covered it at all? Well, I, I think like in all things related to espionage, when you look at these uh, sonic attacks, uh, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, Langley and, and NSA and uh, MI6 is setting back thinking, one, uh, what's behind it? And two, how can we turn the tables on these guys um, to, you know, to point these devices back at them? Yeah, countermeasures, yeah. Yeah, countermeasures. Uh, and then also, let's face it, uh, uh, offensive measures. You know, mm. uh, if, if they're going to do this to us, well, let's take the gloves off and let's uh, turn the tables and see what we can do to them. So mm. uh, there's no doubt in my mind uh, – those discussions have taken place and could very well could be ongoing as we speak. Yeah, yeah. So there could be. I mean, this is these, these sonic weapons. They just sound like something out of a Bond movie, don't they? But they are a reality because I, 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 um, I'm not sure exactly how they all started. Do you know anything about the history of these sonic weapons? No, I know that it uh, has been something that uh, you know we've thought about for a number of years uh, as it uh, affects diplomatic security. You know for. Uh, the protection of, of U.S. personnel around the globe. Uh, but this is the first time that I've seen it manifest itself in this kind of tempo in so many different locations. The, 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 the big intelligence gap I would look at here, Chris, would be 
if if you can think that the Russians or the Chinese can do this yeah. uh, in in Cuba or Moscow, uh, do they have the capability of doing it in places like Addis mm. uh, or Joburg uh, or uh, Tunis? Mm. Uh, and so. Those are the kinds of things when you sit back and think about it on a global perspective. That's one thing that I know that the State Department uh, Diplomatic Security Service would be worried about is where else have they gone after our diplomats that we just haven't figured out yet? Yeah, no, I just think about – I'm actually just thinking about the actual size of such a device because I'm um, – <laughs> In my head, I'm I'm picturing like a satellite dish type thing, but I'm sure it's probably not quite like that at all. But it must it it be interesting to know how you can stage such an attack for, um, and what kind of vantage points and range it would have. Because um, I can't believe it has a massive range, but obviously I have no idea. I'm not a scientist in these things, but it, it just strikes me as it must be quite a close proximity kind of weapon. But I could be wrong. It, it very well could be mobile too. Mm. Uh, for example, uh, in the back of a surveillance van. Uh, it, it could be something like that. It would not necessarily require a uh, a perch or a safe house, you know, overlooking a a diplomatic residence. So uh, I think that it, it's easy to kind of think that that might be what is needed, but in reality, you know, depending upon the miniaturization of whatever has been weaponized here, uh, it could be just thrown in the back of a, a surveillance truck. Yeah, and I, I can, and I'm assuming it must need a quite a reasonable amount of power as well. But sure, sure, but uh, you know, all things are doable in the intelligence space. Yeah, definitely, especially with Q Branch on the case. <laughs> That's right, absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, Fred, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, they can certainly visit uh, our website at www.stratfor.com. Uh, and you'll find uh, all of our analysis and writings there. Excellent. Thank you so much today for coming on, Fred. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening. This is Need to Know.